so much, Noah Satterstrom and Sam Dunson, for this opportunity and for the show. Um, I'm not going to waste any more time. I wanted to introduce this is Jochen Werrick, who is here from. Um, he is the consultant at the uh, Mississippi Museum of Art. He is also a professor at Belmont University, and he's former curator for Cheekwood. And we are extremely lucky to have him here tonight. And he's going to guide us through this discussion. Uh, thank well, you so thank much, Jopin. Thanks for having me, Julia. And um, my role is to uh, really here to set the stage uh, for. Uh, a discussion which I hope we'll all um, be inspired to, to, to have. Um, and those of you who went to the opening reception, you'll know that these, these two artists already have a, a, a real rapport. And, and uh, so for me, really, is to, my mind really is to um, just kind of give you a little bit of a framework, uh, letting you know kind of where I'm coming from in terms of um, um, how I met Noah. And, um, and, and now I'm so pleased to, to know Sam as well. And um, just thinking about some issues that I've been thinking about in, in, in my work with the, the Mississippi Museum of Art. If you could just start the, the first pair of slides, Julia. And uh, uh, Sam, don't be offended. The, the slide that I took of your work is not, it's not so great. Okay. But we'll have another PowerPoint where you get a much better image of this. But, um, you know, Noah's work and Sam's work, side by side, that's how you see it in the gallery. And um, we'll come back to a discussion, and, uh, and Noah, right now I'm not going to go into any depth uh, with, with these images. Um, and, um, <clears throat> but one of, the, one of the issues that um, jumps out to me is, is, is an issue of memory and, um, and history and, and how to deal with the pain. Of, of the past. Um, if you could get the next slide, Julia. Now, um, I've been thinking about these issues in a sort of broader sense because I've been working with this with the Mississippi Museum of Art on a show. It's called Picturing Mississippi, 1817 to uh, 2017. And what it is, it's essentially a bicentennial. So the state of Mississippi has, has its bicentennial next year. 1817 uh, is when it was founded. And it's a really kind of a broad overview of you know, artists who came to Mississippi and painted it. Issue of slavery is one that, that is, is, is very central. Um, and also those of you, and I'll give just a very brief, you know, historically, Mississippi was part of what was called Louisiana Territory. And Louisiana, Louisiana Territory was, was a, a place where uh, the French, the Spanish, the British were all competing you know, for, uh, for supremacy, if you want, and for uh, uh, you know, economic advantage and so on. And of course, there were Native Americans, and there were African Americans, and this was all part of that sort of landscape once it became a state. Um, and then, of course, uh, with the, um, once the uh, Native Americans were forcibly removed, um, all that land became part of that cotton kingdom. And that's when really the, the slave the slave trade really started to um, to grow in, in Mississippi, um, and what they did is they brought in um, because by that time the transatlantic slave trade was abolished. Then it was the it was the, the heydays of the domestic slave trade. 
So they brought in all these slaves from Virginia and Maryland to work in the cotton fields in, um, in Mississippi. Okay. So um, when I visited Natchez, uh, which is you know, one of the oldest towns in, um, in Mississippi, I met, uh, I saw uh, Noah Sederstrom's work, uh, it was actually a cycle, a series of works, panels, um, uh, that, that's called Natchez Bluff. Here's just four different examples. And um, so, um, so Noah really kind of confronted me with this issue of, you know, how does a contemporary artist deal with this, with the past? And um, so here, just a kind of, just a few highlights. Uh, you can see how, for instance, the panel on the top left, it, there's, there's struggle, there's violence. Uh, next panel on the right, you see kind of a little bit of sort of antebellum, um, you know, um, uh, family, uh, family life. Um, uh, and uh, here a uh, armadillo that's walking through the, <laughs> the scene. Um, and uh, but uh, sort of a, it's a very sort of dark dark tree with uh, signs of 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 maybe uh, decay and um, and then on the right you might might be able to see a little bit of a presence of Native Americans uh, you know the sort of Native American um, uh, building there and so so here you know I I, I saw already in, you know in, in in Noah's work sort of the sort of uh, emergence of all these kind of emblems and. and and, and, and elements that um, um, you know, I have been thinking about and how, how this, this um, space had been shaped by these different, different elements and how there were sort of these dark forces. Let's go to the next. Uh, and um, you know, again, in my research, I've come across all kinds of images of you know, plantation life. And this one is from the 1870s. And this is an, an artist, you know, his name is not that important. I mean, he, he, you know, eventually he sort of, he kind of, I don't think he had a very long-lasting uh, career here in, 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 in the United States, but, you know, he was doing plantation scenes, and they were very idyllic, and it looked like, you know, it, this was like, uh, everything was, was perfectly, perfectly uh, working in, in, in the South, in, in, the, in the plantation, and nothing had really changed since, since the Civil War. Uh, so uh, I was thinking about these historic images and how you know a contemporary artist would kind of, in a sense, sort of um, um, uh, grapple with with this kind of imagery. And then, of course, this imagery you find it in the movies, right? And you find it in, in popular culture that's still kind of antebellum, antebellum romance, right? So let's go to the next. Then I started to uh, I started to sort of do a little bit more reading about you know. Uh, uh, contemporary Art and Memory. It's, great, it's a great book, I, have, I highly recommend it. It's by Lisa Saltzman, uh, Making a Memory Matter. And in the beginning of her book, she, uh, and she, she, um, she, mention, she mentions a kind of a legend. Um, and it's, it's told by Pliny the Elder. According to uh, Pliny the Elder, um, really the origin of painting and sculpture go back to a kind of a legendary story of the Corinthian maid. This is a painting by a British artist of the Corinthian maid and her lover. What she would do is she would draw the outlines of her lover before he went off to war. Right, you see that here in this, in this wonderful kind of British romantic painting. And so what she was left with, because he died, right, what she was left with was this, was this out, was the outline, was the silhouette of him. 
So uh, this author, Lisa Saltzman, then looks at how in contemporary art, especially so in the 20th century art, this issue of um, artists um, uh, kind of, you know, working through working through memory by trying to sort of fill these fill the silhouette, fill the sh fill the shadow. Let's show you a few examples. Let's go to the next one. Um, and I was kind of thinking about, you know, what are the contemporary artists that I've, that I've seen, that I admire, that do that kind of work, that, that look at the sort of the, the, uh, the past through these shadows. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers the artist Fred Wilson. Fred Wilson had an installation, the Maryland Historical Society, this was back in the you know, early 1990s, Maryland Historical Society invited him to uh, basically go through their collection and create a, um, an installation, an exhibition from anything that he could find. And, and this was a really powerful um, uh, exhibition. He, what he would do is he would take this wiki post that they have in the collection and set it right next to these wonderful 19th century chairs you know, Rococo, whatever the style is, right? And, you know, chilling, absolutely chilling. That's, that's, that's what I mean by, by the shadow, okay? Let's go to the next. Here he had in one, um, you know, glass case, one, one um, plexiglass case, a, a set of silver and shadows, right? So, um, and the show was called Mining the Museum, okay? So, and I, again, just look at, look at this as, as in terms of the shadows and what's, what's left, the marking of what's, what, you know, what used to be, what used to be slavery, okay? Let's go to the next. This is a terrible slide, I apologize. Uh, the artist's name is Hank Willis Thomas, he's a photographer, it's called Cotton Bowl. And I think, you know, if you, you know, you, I'm so sorry, but there's basically a, somebody who's in the field picking cotton, and there's a football player, right? So he's playing with, obviously, with, with um, the sports culture that we live with, but also kind of thinking about the past and, and how maybe through, through the sports culture, you know, we, we are still dealing with issues from the past. And um, let's go to the next. Don't want don't to belabor this too much. This is an artist I discovered uh, through my research on Mississippi. He's uh, from a very, very small town, and I always forget the name of it, but it's up somewhere up in northern Mississippi, where uh, I think when he grew up, it was predominantly Native American. It was Choctaw, Chickasaw, and it was African American. And so he is, he is uh, I think, Ch Choctaw and Chickasaw and African American. And he, what he does is he um, uses these um, obviously this sort of punching bag. Um, I think he probably uses used ones and then he creates with beautiful Native American beadwork, kind of, you know, a new kind of, a new object. Um, and this one is called Sharecropper and he, I, I was talking to him about the show and about this work and he said it's dedicated to his grandfather, one his great-grandfather who was a sharecropper in Mississippi. And so, um, so I would again ask, you know, well, you know, is there is there is there a way to maybe think about this as even though it's a it's a it's a very physical object that it's not a shadow, but could you know could one think about it also in terms of um, of this object in a sense kind of you know kind of um, recalling 
um, uh, a kind of um, a past uh, that's lost and family memory uh, and which is also something that is very relevant in Noah's work. Let's go to the next, Julia, thank you. And of course, there's Carol Walker. I think many of you probably know her work. Uh, she's obviously the artist that really has made sort of a silhouette, kind of brought it back to life in contemporary art and um, you know, um, her work is still, I think, somewhat controversial, even though she's been around for a while. But you know, here's, here's a kind of a work where she she uses essentially a an image that she took from Harper's Weekly, which was an illustrated journal, uh, uh, especially during the Civil War, very popular because they would have these illustrations from the Civil War. And here it is a Harper's pictorial history of the Civil War. Alabama loyalists uh, greeting the federal gunboats. Right? That's, that's the scene. And then you have this, this black silhouette, this black woman right on top of that, that image. Right? And um, it's very interesting how she, uh, she uses a sort of a document, if you want, and then uh, you know, kind of uh, 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 superimposes a, a figure, a silhouette that, um, uh, you know, um, you know, all really alters alters the whole, whole alters the whole image and kind of this black this black spot this black ink spot that kind of just kind of uh, you know takes over and brings brings back past in so many ways in so many different ways. Let's go to the next. Now um, here's here's another image that is in the show by Noah, and I was just kind of wondering. And no, you don't have to talk about this right now, but if you go back, if you will go, go back to the Karawak for just a second, right? The idea of this sort of, this sort of, the shadow sort of superimposing itself, and then go to Noah's, and even though, you know, it's, there's something here maybe that you, you, could, you could argue there's some kind of superimposition and, and um, um, shadow, shadowing going on. Um, let's go to the next. And then I was, you know, I, was, I got so curious. I, I asked Sam, you know, uh, once I saw his work next to next to Noah's, and I said, Sam, what, what, where are you coming from? Where, what, what other work have you done that maybe, you know, has has something to do with with this looking at the past, looking at memory, and and even, you know, so with Sam's work, you know, it's it's much more much more direct in some in some ways, right? Um, but you know you have you have cartoon characters and violence is there, right? Um, and this one it's called sh uh, shooting. Um, and um, but then there's also this this issue, and I want to ask them about that. Is kind of this issue of the mask. You see how you know this rap dancer figure has a you know the mask of Lincoln and. And this cartoon figure is wearing a kind of a you know a kind of a gas mask. You know. So let's go to the next. Here, uh, collateral damage. Um, again, just kind of uh, you know masking. Uh, are there shadows going on here that that we don't even, we don't even see? Next one. And then, and I think that this is probably a reference to Abu Ghraib, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But, but again, the idea of torture uh, and um, mask, the mask, um, uh, the hooded, the hooded figure, and, and, and so that's that's something I'd love to I'd love to hear more about. See if I have anything else here. 
Do I have anything else? I think that's it. So we're going back to the back to the beginning. So I, I'm I'm just going to maybe ask a couple questions specifically to your work, guys. The first question for Noah, you know, the idea of the, the sort of the shadow, the silhouette, right, and having to sort of sort of do the currently made work of kind of like trying to sort of kind of reimagine or imagine kind of what what it was like, and with you, it's also very personal because of family history and so on, but where does narrative come in, in your work? And, and we haven't talked about that really, <laughs> but you know, and maybe the, the one, the, the kind of the, the long piece that... Um, the Road to Shibuda, oh, right, uh, maybe that one, because you know, talk a little bit about that. Uh, narrative and its relationship to painting is probably uh, a sort of lifelong question or dilemma for me. Um, you know, because narrative implies uh, duration, it implies an arc, and painting is antithetical to that, it's just a static image. It all exists simultaneously, and so trying to imply a narrative uh, requires a lot of artifice, it requires a lot of footwork to try to get that to work. But you know, if you're, that's where the freeze comes in. And so, uh, that was maybe an important kind of launch for me, because I've been fighting with the narrative thing for a long time. And uh, I have a kind of somewhat mentor in London who is really disapproving of everything. Uh, but he's also been helpful at like asking the right questions at the right time. And he's a big champion of narrative painting, so he's always right there. And, uh, and so when the Natchez thing came up, uh, it was with this invitation to make a piece about Natchez for the tricentennial, the town tricentennial celebration. And our family, has this is my family here, uh, have had roots in Natchez since the 1700s, so there's a lot of material there. And so of course I jumped at it and then started to think, of like, what, how would I go about that? First of all, celebrating a town that has this really brutal trajectory uh, is problematic, and trying to get an image to capture that is beyond what I can imagine. And so the freeze came up as an idea where I could take the whole bluff you know, of Natchez, see the river in its expanse, which is what I was accustomed to growing up, and then basically lay out, you know, 300 years of uh, history on it. Uh, much of which is, um, is various forms of atrocity. Uh, I don't want to paint it as like it's only a site of atrocity, but you really can't, in my view, celebrate a place that, that, that has such brutality without addressing it in some kind of way. Uh, but I also didn't want it to be like, this is just a massacre painting, because that's not fair either. There were a lot of people that just lived there. There were a lot of people who had full lives in multiple generations, and lots of joy there, humanity and stuff. Uh, so once I started hooking these pieces together, and there were just panels that linked together into like a 25-foot-long piece, uh, I needed to populate it with stuff. And I immediately thought of Kara Walker, because all those silhouettes are so malleable. But I was immediately like, I'm definitely not doing that. Because that's like such a reference to her work, which she's just like the master at. Um, 
but while hooking up narratives like that, uh, I think it kind of led to the idea that I can paint stories. And then uh, when I was invited to, to do the Mississippi Museum of Art State Bicentennial thing, it was a similar dilemma, like, how do I paint something meant to celebrate a state that is uh, the hospitality state, but it's known worldwide as the most brutal state uh, in terms of its historical um, uh, stuff that, you know, how do you make that happen except through narrative? So uh, from there, I started to work more directly with family stories, and um, it's still a challenge though, trying to figure out whether painting is useful along those lines. I mean, you have to look at Siena, uh, Sienese painting from the 14th century. You have to look at Bruegel and all the crazy stuff he's got going on simultaneously. Lots of crazy stuff that kind of shows up here, where there's the continuous narrative all in one painting, where you know, something is happening, Uri follows it, and those same people show up somewhere else in the painting where something else is happening. You know, lots of tricks like that. Do you think about narrative in your work, uh, Sam, and, and, and also particularly, <coughs> so I'm thinking about the South and how maybe the South is a, maybe the history of the South is something that informs you, and, but in terms of in terms of your work, too, is narrative something that you think about? It's, um, it's something that I, I fight with all the time, and really similar to what Noah's saying, is like, I mean, how do you begin to tell a story uh, and not have it to where it's this linear beginning, middle, and end, when you're looking at something that's static that should be able to actually move and play and change with whoever it is that's actually engaging the story that you're telling at that time. So uh, what I attempt to do is to just tell enough of my own narrative in order to allow the piece to be more of a conversation. Uh, so if someone does bring their sort of story to it, their story doesn't bounce off of the painting and kind of rebound back on them. Uh, I try my best to sort of leave enough mystery and enough gaps in the painting uh, or the, I mean, whatever I'm doing, the sculptural piece, whatever it is, uh, to allow somebody to fill in the gaps for themselves. Mm -hmm. So they actually take part of my story with them. Um, but in that conversation, even if I'm sitting there talking to the person uh, face to face, I actually allow that painting to be a narrative for me and that person at that point in time. Um, and it's something that I had to literally grow into because as a young artist, I just kind of automatically thought that, okay, if I'm going to be a figurative artist, then I needed the viewers or the audience to understand exactly what I was attempting to say to them. So, uh, and, I, and I found that I was starting to concern myself with the audience more than, than myself in that, uh, in, in that dilemma that I was kind of creating. Uh, so the studio time became less creative and far more, I mean, sort of uh, thought out and planned and so on and so forth. Um, so I had to kind of break away from that. So the idea of a, of a narrative for me is more so 
just a connection to my own story that is ongoing and doesn't really have a beginning, a middle, and an end if I'm thinking of something that might be interesting at that point in time. And it's just as important as something that might have happened to me a few years ago and just as important as something that hasn't happened to me yet. Um, so, but there is a connection to the South being a black person and a storyteller. I mean, that's just, there's a strong connection. Um, my, my parents are from the South. They moved to the, to the Midwest. I'm originally from Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and I always would go back down to Georgia and spend I mean, some time in the summer. And just the idea of hearing my grandmother and my uncles and cousins tell stories completely different than, than I had heard or that I would actually tell them if I hadn't connected with them in that way. Uh, it, it, it's part of my nature. Um, so the South is really, really a strong part of me through that idea and that understanding of the, the history of, of storytelling, which to me is kind of my narrative as a whole. Right, okay, yeah, no, I'm, I think that the storytelling, I think that's, that and the narrative, that's where I, where I was trying to kind of sort of see the connection and how you approach it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of storytelling being important in the South, um, I mean, there's the writing that's really important in the South. There's the songwriting that's really important in the South. Painting is not like a great fixture in the Southern culture. And maybe in part because there's like, there's some draw to storytelling and painting does not necessarily lead to storytelling. It, you know, it's not, not nearly as much as writing or, or singing uh, because there's duration already in writing and singing. Whereas Painting is they're just a thing that you just made when you look at it all simultaneously. Painting can't make a narrative. Only words can make a narrative, but painting can imply narrative, and that's really confusing. And I think it's interesting because you can't force a narrative in painting. If you, you can imply a story, but only if you have text next to it saying what that story is supposed to be, can you be sure what you're looking at? And so, you know, text has been really important to all these pieces because without it, I can't assume anybody sees anything narrative happening other than a bunch of stuff that's happening all simultaneously. And so it's not, it's not in painting's nature to make stories happen. Um, um, but I think that's useful only in the, that, like, um, making making stories that don't ever close. They're not fixed stories, they're not statements to the degree that you need to read them a certain way, uh, because paintings that need to be read a certain way come off as propaganda, and I'm not interested in that at all. Julia, can we go to the antebellum painting? Thank you. So, you know, I mentioned, when I was looking at your earlier work, I saw the, the, the mask, the mm -hmm. mask, the issue of masking, and I look at this, and, um, you know, um, it, to me, it's, you know, it, it, this painting, too, uh, you know, has, has a lot of this, the mask, masking going on, this right? So, um, without maybe, uh, without asking you to completely reveal the mask, <laughs> or unveil the mask, but, you know, is that, is that an issue that, um, that, that, maybe for the viewer really kind of is something that, that maybe helps understand what, yeah. what, you're, what you're getting at? It's um, kind of a symbolic understanding of 
what one has to do to make sense of the work. Um, and that's, that's for everybody. I mean, that's regardless of race. Uh, uh, it's kind of a play on, I can really speak from my vantage point of a, of a black male as understanding how one has to mask certain things in order to make another person feel comfortable around you. Um, but when you go into your home and, you have to, and you're able to take that mask off, you recognize that you're a different person in your home. And everybody's a different person in their home than they are when they go out. But uh, you recognize that you're a different person in your home, that you can actually relax and take that mask off. Uh, so that play on mask building uh, is somewhat that, I'm sorry, something that is actually important in, in my work to make me or force me to understand that I have to be someone different in order to make everyone feel comfortable around me. Uh, so I tend to smile a lot, I tend to laugh a lot, that's in my nature, but it's still something that I put on um, in order for people to say, hey, Sam Dunson, he's a nice guy. It's not something that, I, that <coughs> has become me. Yeah. And yeah. that mask is something that I'm having more of a problem taking off at certain times. So this is okay. my opportunity. Can I push you a little bit now? Because yeah. you know, when I saw the work, my first reaction was, this is going to be a really angry person who painted this. <laughs> and then I talked to you on the phone, and it was, those two images did not drive at all. I, I mean, so, my work is known as, uh, and has been, for some time, but uh, Sam is an angry black man. Right. Uh, right. But that's another mask that I'm allowing myself to say, well, here's the things that I really feel. Right. Take it and leave, take it or leave it. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't have to actually smile right. in my work. I mean, I, I make it enough, make enough satire in it to make it, I mean, sort of approachable, but I'm still wanting to say anything and everything that I want to mm -hmm. say without that mask being on. So, and I, I'm gonna turn it over to the audience real soon, but um, what kind of, share with us real brief, you know, you saw Noah's work, um, the Shibuda painting, mm -hmm. and Julia. It's the Times of War, actually. Times of yeah. War, it's called the Times of War. Mm -hmm. The other one is Sh Sh uh, Road to Shibuda. Right, that's Times of War. And Julia invited you to respond to this painting. Yeah. Just kind of share with us, kind of what what went through your mind, and how did you know how did you how did you sort of from this initial maybe your initial reaction, then come to the antebellum painting which which we just saw. Yeah, that uh, was, and I'll, I'll try to make it real brief because that could be a whole other <laughs> whole other talk with itself. But it was scary. I mean, yeah, that's the nicest word that I can say. It was, man, it's, it's hard to kind of put into words the feeling that one has when fear is going to make you not want to approach something that you know you have to approach <laughs> and you need to approach it. Um, so when I was asked, it was I mean, kind of going back to the conversation, uh, when Noah talked to myself and uh, Joe Love, and Julia, 
all together, it was like basically saying that Noah has to name it. It wasn't like we were saying, you have to do this. We know you weren't going to do it. We, we know as an artist, you would work through it. But it was like, you, you, you have to tell your story. So in that, when Julia asked if I could, I mean, if I would be willing to kind of respond to the piece, um, I basically kind of said, if, if Noah's okay with it, then, then I most definitely am all right with it. And then the introspection and questioning and all of that came up as to what in the world would I, would I say, knowing that I'm responding to a work that is based in the concept of, of enslaving people and that understanding. So it's something that I hadn't dealt with very much in my work in that form or fashion. So uh, to make a long story shorter, as opposed to short, <laughs> um, what I did is I have a, a distant relative, Hattie McDaniel, who uh, played the, uh, the, the mammy, I guess you would say, uh, character in Gone with Wind, first black female when when I uh, went in Oscar. And I, I was thinking about just kind of putting her in that situation, but it just seems so kind of playful and kind of fake in my mind. So when I uh, thought about like, how do I approach this? When I read the title, In Times of War, the rest of the sentence became the, the, the painting. It was like, in times of war, these are the things that have to happen. I mean, a dog has to suck on a woman's breast in order for her not to die, which in my mind just sound, sounded just so absurd. So, I mean, why wouldn't one feed the child that's in the painting? Why wouldn't the, the, the nurse that's with the child, why wouldn't she run away? Why, why, it, there's, there's your opportunity to have freedoms. I mean, so it just seemed like it was just absurd. So how does one get to that absurdity is where the pain happened. And so all of the things that were happening in, in my work, I just wanted to take an idea of the research that I had done about slavery and then just blow it out of proportion to make it absurd. And it just became even more real, I guess, because no matter how absurd it was getting, it was still based in the truth. <laughs> so, so I, and then I looked at Joel, and I was like, Noah's peace, and it was like, no matter how absurd I was thinking that that seemed to be, it was based in actual truth. truth. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that that's kind of where the, the painting kind of led me. So, sounds strange. That's where the painting allowed me to paint it. Okay. So, so. There's a kind of undercurrent that I feel like might be uh, important to, to touch on. When you and I first talked about family stories and especially what led into the In Times of War painting, and uh, I had been kind of glancing off some of the stories, but in a buffered sort of way, and then we were talking about these uh, wartime family narratives that are pretty vivid uh, and I, I came away with it with the encouragement to just paint them directly and I was expressing nervousness about like should I paint about my family's slave owning and my ancestry's you know history of slave ownership first of all do I want to do that and then Second of all, this is a really tough time in America. It's not like there's been a not, not a tough time in America, but uh, I don't want to make any assumptions about the political uh, 
philosophies of anybody in the room, but uh, bigotry is on the minds of many. And, uh, and it always has been on the minds of, of most. And so here we are, I'm thinking about my family's history with slave ownership and uh, making work to ostensibly to celebrate the history of Mississippi and needing to figure out how to address my family's association with bondage and how, like, what am I supposed to do with that? Should I do that? Ah, I can't do that. And then I was talking to you about it. Do people want to hear, you know, it's a touchy time. Do people want to see work made by the descendant of slave owners? I mean, you know, that's like taking up wall space that I feel like other people made up a better uh, viewpoint. And you've said all voices need to be a thing, all of them. And, uh, and then not long after that, I showed Julia the image. She brought it up when we were talking, and you and Joe and uh, Julia all said the same thing. Like, well, you've thought to paint it now. Now, if you don't do it, you're choosing not to. And then what? And so then when it came up, and can you do a response to it? And it's like, well, I choose not to, but then i got to live with that. <laughs> then there's what I'm saying is there's this like current of uh, what is the responsibility of the artist because I don't see myself as a social statement maker with my art. I don't want to be that statement work that has a statement like that. feels like so much work and not fun at all. And propaganda to me. And painting I don't think is a good, a good form for propaganda. Words are much better for that all other media. Painting is way too fluid. But there's the idea that, you know, you might be drawn as a painter, as an artist, to hard to resolve questions, impossible to resolve questions, and there's like a wall there, and then you use your art as a kind of flickering light to move into that darkness. You're not going to come up with some like tidy resolution to anything, but you'll come up with some imagery, and that can maybe kick off conversations, and that's what kind of where all this led, you know the philosophy that artists do have some, uh, not obligation, because nobody should feel obliged to deal with social stuff or slavery or whatever, but a certain responsibility to, if there's a curiosity, to either follow it or you're choosing not to follow it and, you know, coming to terms with that to some degree. Uh, and it took a lot of effort, even with the Natchez thing. I was like, well, if I start making work about Natchez, uh, Julia, my wife Julia, encouraged me to get in touch with African Americans I grew up with and never ask them, what was it like growing up in Natchez? All I know is my experience, my family's experience, and you know, on through the generations, what was it like for black kids that were going to my school? So I called some of them up and asked them, you know, and got, you know, I got a completely different view of the town. And then, uh, you know, uh, we were talking about this show coming up, and I was expressing my nervousness about it. And I got in touch with our friend T.C. Tolbert, who's got a really good read on, he's a social activist, poet, has a really good read on um, uh, ethics, personal ethics. And I was kind of going to him for advice, and he's like, you know, one thing that it's easy to do if you think of yourself as a kind person, a compassionate person, is to accidentally take on someone else's history someone else's experience. And that's not, you know, you gotta really stay focused with what it is you've experienced. I'm thinking about those images you put up where there's like the metalwork 
and then there's the shackle, and there's the whipping post and the chairs. It's not um, expressive. It's not even subjective. It's just sort of like a factual thing. These things are, and now they're in proximity, and now they mean something. And then the artist can kind of step away. And so what I think was important about what I want to always kind of be reinforcing with this is it's not a surreal image. It looks like a surreal image, but everything in it is accurate, factual stuff because I wanted to like be able to put it there and then step back and not comment on it. And even we were talking about the pieces side by side. I think of these as members of my family uh, because it was from a specific story. And so I've specifically given them as little expression as I can make in, fa in faces. And so it also hopefully keeps it open. Um, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, but it seems relevant to like, how do you approach this kind of stuff, you know? Well, I have certainly more questions, but I, I really kind of want to do that right now. I just kind of want to open it up for questions in the audience. Anybody wants to share maybe something similar in terms of maybe a tough, tough question about the past? And First. Well, I, I had a question. I mean, both the both the artists have spoken about um, leaving some blank spaces in what you do in one way or another, either in expression or in content, uh, so that the viewer of your works can bring their own experience, background, context to it, and enhance conversation. Um, I had the experience, Sam, of watching a, a young man at the uh, opening over at Julia's uh, a week or so ago take about 15 minutes it sounded it looked like to sort of explain to you and develop yes and of course he was, he was talking about what he was experiencing right right and uh, it made me think about a priest friend of mine who said people who tell him all the time about what they heard in a sermon that that priest never said but they heard so I guess my question is to either or both of you. Uh, do you ever learn something about the power of your work by the observation and words of others? Almost every time. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, and if I began to close that off, then I would be basically back where I was when I was a lot younger trying to tell a story. And not really tell a story, force a story on somebody. Uh, so through that conversation, um, the, the gentleman that was actually uh, uh, talking to me about my work, I learned something about my work, just as you were saying with the, with the priest, I learned something about my work that I didn't even know. And it was a story that now becomes new uh, when I look at the piece. I can't unthink what he told me about that. Uh, about that certain part of the piece. So now it has become part of the piece for me. So if somebody else has a conversation with me, I can't kind of put that to the side and say that was not there. It, it's, it's there now. And I mean, I think that's one thing that it does, and I'm pretty sure Noah would, would say the same thing, that it makes the work present every time that someone new sees it. I mean, so when I see like an old work of mine and someone has just seen it for that, for that time, they're not thinking about what was happening to me when you painted that painting back 15 years ago? They're actually looking at it about their experiences right now. So that work becomes present every time, uh, every time it's seen. So anything that uh, a person actually talks to me about it, I'm learning something new 
even though I may have painted something 10 years ago, I'm still learning something new about it every time through that person's eyes. So it's, it's just always present. I mean, so that, that's something that I would say is, is I have to listen to it. <laughs> every time that it comes up, it has to become new every time that uh, I have a conversation. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, uh, especially with this, this body of work, on its surface, it's, uh, it's about family, our family, uh, something very specific. But, you know, you know who, would, who would really care about my family? You know, it's like, uh, that was part of the hang-up. Like, why should I paint about my family? Because who's going to care about that? Which is, you know, it's a useless question. Uh, but it's, you know, if it's your own work. But it's a, just a lens into something else. Uh, and it's like this kind of kaleidoscopic lens so that you don't get, you know, it's not a one-to-one -one thing. You paint about your family, somebody sees it, and then it refracts off into other stuff. And, you know, it's more kaleidoscopic than it is um, microscopic or whatever it is. Uh, and so as the show has been up, talking to people and stuff, uh, I'm not seeing it as much about my family I'm seeing it in the context of also what's going on in the world. I mean, when we, uh, you know, we talked first about uh, about doing a, a back and forth call and response thing. That was the night of the election, and then now, you know, the inauguration is tomorrow. Um, and uh, you know, I'm thinking about in Mississippi and Natchez the idea that uh, these aristocratic, uh, the slave owning uh, heritage, is so invested in uh, the idea of what things used to be like when it was good and uh, which is such a peculiar idea you know especially if you're not from the south but the idea that before the war things were really great uh, is such a, a weird way to think about times of slavery and bondage and uh, and but the, that, the level of investment in that is really strong and uh, you know when you go to protect uh, a, a collective memory about when things were good, somebody has taken away what was good about it, and so somebody is to blame for it, and it takes a certain amount of effort to maintain a kind of image of what things used to be like, and things get really warped. And so I feel like all those conversations are a part of this. It didn't feel like it's about my family anymore. In the context of this stuff, it feels a lot more like it's about, you know, how to, uh, how to tell the truth, you know, how to free yourself from some sort of false image of uh, the halcyon days of yore or whatever, uh, that become a lot more complex and a lot more human when you just tell it as it actually is. Even the like Annabella narratives of my family, that it's really easy to go like the slave owners were bad and the slaves were subject to their badness, which, you know, on paper that's really an obvious thing, bondage is bad. But when you break down really key images, like, can you pause that one for a sec? Um, you did that on purpose. Um, <laughs> this is just one little glimpse into it, and I'll try to be brief because I don't want to open it up. But um, this depicts when our uh, ancestors were uh, still at their home outside of Natchez, and the Union occupation came in, and uh, there were deserters on the side. It was chaos, and so the Union army. Uh, stationed a black Union soldier there to protect the family from bandits and jaywalkers and deserters that were just roaming around stealing shit. And so there was a black Union soldier guarding 
the home of plantation owners, or it was a doctor, but you know, ostensibly of that that uh, crowd. And the boy was my great 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 grandfather. Uh, was three at the time. Uh, he would play with the soldier, and the soldier would carve uh, bayonets out of cane, and they would play back and forth. And it's once you start to get a look, live through the details of this stuff, it becomes a lot harder to just polarize people. Mm -hmm. And that polarization right now in the country is just, it's the, the overarching narrative. So, anyway. So I saw another hand up there in that, in that vicinity back there. Well, I'd like to ask Julia a question about her initial reaction to the work when you first saw it. Which, which one? To those work. And then how did the idea come about of asking another artist to respond to things? Well, I initially, um, Noah and his lovely sister just happened into the gallery. Probably been, feels like close to a year-ish ago now. Yeah, last summer, last spring. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I happened to pull up Noah's website after he left, sort of, what's this guy all about? He's clearly a very, very intelligent and, and, and really easy to talk to human being. Um, so I pulled up his website, and it doesn't happen to me terribly frequently, but when you see someone's work for the first time, and your heart rate goes up. And that's something that happens a lot more in my life now that I'm a gallerist. Um, but uh, not as frequently as I would like. And I just was really struck with your, as an oil painter, I was so struck with your handling of oil paint. Same with you, Sam, always have been. Um, and I, f I feel a brotherhood with you guys just in being painters, do you know what I mean? Like, before I ever even met you, Sam, like, I had a kinship to, with you through your work, just in the way that we handle paint. And that's something I felt immediately in Noah's work. And um, not comparing myself to you guys in any way. But uh, I, I just got really excited about Noah's work, and I, I'm pretty sure I wasted little to no time off. Like, we immediately, I, I emailed you or called you, talked about schedule, lined up a show roughly eight months away, so you had plenty of time. And it kind of coincided perfectly with the, the Mississippi Bicentennial situation where you were composing in times of war, and he sent me, texted me a photo, or somehow showed me a photo on your phone, and I died. Mm -hmm. I mean, that peace, this peace, you guys, it just owned me from the minute I saw it. And anyone that knows me, that's close to me, I did not shut up about it for like two months. <laughs> and anyone who was, I mean, I really, I, I, I was just so blown away. You were such a gifted painter. Thank you. You really, truly. Um, I don't know, everything sort of snowballed from there. I think there's a, not to interrupt, but I think there's a kind of a other current of what's the responsibility of artists and then the, what's the role of curators in this because you know you encouraged a certain kind of train of thought for me and then it kind of basically got handed off to you and you made this show and, and Sam you invited Sam in and you know that uh, symbiotic relationship between curator and artist I think is important 
on some sort of level. I don't think it, I don't think all curators need to operate on that level, and they certainly can't. Certain galleries don't necessarily want to deal with this kind of material um, because art can be a species of a lot of different stuff. It can be interior design. That's totally fine. It can be a certain activism or a certain academic quality. But where, where there can be this really generative relationship between curators and artists, I gravitate to that uh, because it feels like you can get a lot more done that way. You know, when you apply, you, you know, your intelligence and your kind of framework to what we're doing, which is basically moving painting. I mean, I'm in the position I have to talk to the museum educators, and they're going to ask me all kinds of questions about these works. And I, you know, I'm in this situation where I have to interpret the work for the educators. And so it's a it's a whole cycle of you know kind of you know. But I'm glad you you mentioned that. Well, there's there's a certain I want to go on, but. A uh, painter's job really is just to move color around on canvas, and that should be kind of where that stops. So you wind up with a painting, you don't wind up with a painting, but then there needs to be a whole infrastructure of intelligent people who then generate public dialogue and that kind of stuff, and that doesn't need to necessarily fall into the painters to do that. They can't do that. They can't sell paintings. They shouldn't have to do all that. And, you know. Anyway. I certainly just finish up. I certainly never set out with the intention. I asking, inviting Sam, I just couldn't, sh I couldn't stop thinking after you and Dojo and I all hung out in the kitchen and just were how, how, just having the most magical, the most incredible conversation and so open and everyone was, I think everyone's sparks were kind of, right. you know, flying that night and uh, it was days later that this, I was talking to Sarah Estes, actually, who I wish was here. Um, just having cocktails and trying to convey what we had all talked, just even trying to encapsulate that discussion, which this piece actually illustrates a really important nugget from that conversation. The, the, the sort of locking into place this understanding of how many um, white Americans their lineage is so easily traceable throughout history um, because there's so much documentation and there's so much, you know, so many records. And um, most black Americans, if your lineage traces back to slavery, you basically have no real hope of tracing your lineage beyond the Civil War. You know, it, it all just becomes this chaotic mess. And I, this piece, Noah, I mean, it just blows my mind that it just encapsulates that part of that conversation that, to me, was just such an important trigger to this whole dialogue between you two and, and this, the, how encouraging you were to him and to me in that, in that moment, I think has been an incredible thrust, and, you know, and, and sort of has helped move this body along in ways that I don't think it would have. And so it makes perfect sense to have invited your voice and your gift into this whole dialogue. And I just, I could not stop wondering. I want to I I talk to you, Sam, about it all day long, but I don't want you to paint about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, uh, I, if, I think everybody here has seen was working a show, uh, but when I came in to bring my piece in, um, 
I told Julian, it wasn't a smack on the nose at all. I was like, I don't even want to talk to him because the work is literally kind of humanizing both sides enough to where that conversation just with the images was almost enough to where I, anything that I would have said or anything that Noah would have said at that point in time where I was just taking it in would have just muddied the waters. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether that would have been, oh my goodness, I mean, these people were enslaved and these people were the slaveholders. I mean, even the language mm -hmm. would have just muddied everything. So, I mean, in, when we looked at the pieces, it not only humanized the enslaved people in the images, it also humanized the slave owners. And that's strange for a black person to say <laughs> that I'm going to humanize somebody that owned a slave. But the story's complex. You can't look at it and say this. You can no longer look at this and say that each side is less complex by the work being created. It's more complex. And the thing that we need to do when something becomes more complex is to become more complex along with it and have those conversations. So I mean, I, and I've applauded Julia, I mean, ever since she asked, because it's something that I would have, I would have done. I mean, I would have had the conversation. I would have yapped about it for hours with anybody who would want to listen, but if nobody was there in my studio with me, I had to talk about my feelings about that, that idea, that concept. And that was something that, I mean, when I brought the piece in, I was just gonna, hey, here's the piece, and kind of wanted to <laughs> kind of move on out afterwards. But it was, it, at that point in time, it became part of the, that complex conversation. It was a really key element to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, uh, and, and just knowing that it was housed in the same space that the story I felt that Noah was telling me was, it, it made sense at that point in time. And the painting made no sense to me as I was painting it because I was, it was just like, how in the hell does this stuff happen? Researching images and seeing people in these, yeah, yeah. And then to put it in that and hope that people aren't looking at it to say, uh, that's, uh, that's something that happened in the past. No, it's, it's, it was the foundation of everything that's going on even right now. So right, that's, that's, yeah. that's a key part because it can be like a history lesson and, uh, and trying to make, you know, I mean, slavery isn't the genesis of all bigotry. I mean, right, bigotry right, is right. this human thing, so you've got a taste for it. But uh, it is a key part of a lot of the struggles that we're in right now. We had uh, an English friend come to visit my folks years ago and was in Mississippi and, and just had this revelation that, you know, I bet some of the black people in Mississippi are descended from slaves. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this idea that, you know, which is it's easy to sort of put it back and remember you saying, I don't know that I've ever known anybody whose family owns slaves. And it's like, we, you know, we don't go around saying it all the time, and that's part of the problem maybe, but my mom was saying just the other day, I wish that I could know what it's like for it to be weird to hear that we own slaves because mm -hmm. we grew up knowing it. We didn't know to what degree or how they were treated or how many or anything like that, but it was just always there. If you come from a powerful Mississippi family, you're going to have had slaves. But then you don't really go further with that. And so the idea that you might not know consciously that, in, oh, it's, has anybody in here, do you know if you're family owned slaves? I'd be curious to know. I don't know. 
<laughs> How about, uh, does anybody in the room know that you are descended from slaves? It's almost a given. Right there, you've got yeah. this huge split of how we relate to this history. Yeah. And, and it's not like you can solve it by talking about it, but you certainly don't solve it by not talking about it. Mm. That's part of what I think you were saying in yeah. at Julius Gallery. It's like, you got to do, do something. You know, we got to do something. And we, yeah. have a, we have a tendency just to go to our corners right. <laughs> when that conversation comes up. <laughs> All right, I'm going to hold this. And you hold your own, we'll put our fists up and we'll have it out with each other. But we've never really had it out in a, in a, in a conversation, and it shouldn't be a fight. It should be kind of coming down and saying, okay, yeah, we know that there were slave owners, and we know that there were enslaved people. So since we got it on the table, then let's just talk about how that might have actually adjusted the way people think about both of these groups of people. And nobody really wants to just... And it seems so easy. It seems so, I mean, just like it just makes so much sense when that is laid out at the table, but it, we never yeah. laid out. And if you follow it from history forward, it goes quickly into what we recognize today as just sort of a underlying uh, white supremacy, you know, and on an institutional level that happens all, all the time. And it's not so. Therein lies the power of painting about it. I mean, that's what uncaps it onto the table and makes it, it, it presents all of these delicate intricacies from, you know, history, and, and, and I don't know how it just sort of levels everything and makes everyone a human being. You can't be in the presence of this work and want to hold it on, like you were mm -hmm. just saying, like you, hold it, you stay in your corner. I mean, Makes no it easier one, to talk I, about I've stuff. yet to witness anyone react to this work in that fashion. Mm -hmm. like, I just am blown away by how this, I want to live with it. You know, like, I, I, I want to live with that every day. It's like, you know, like, it's, it's a beautiful reminder, your work, of, of humanity and, and how to avoid recreating this god awful, you know, like, we really flirting. Silence. I just, I'm so glad that we're here the night before the inauguration. Yeah, yeah, it seems useful. You know what I mean? I would not want to be anywhere else. I would like any questions. Is that Sam? No. Oh, I have to. I'm Sam. Understand each other. We need to 
like he said, open it up, talk with each other, and you can understand where he's coming from. He's understanding where you're coming mm -hmm. from. You're a human being. You're not somebody I'm looking at like Mississippi was this and that. Mm -hmm. But I see you as a person growing up. You didn't know that as growing up. Because you see, when I went to a museum before and I saw these were supposed to be Christian people, but they had the, the, the black people hanging. But they took pictures in front of it. They were a beautiful family. They loved it. They were smiling. Mm -hmm. But the people were hanging there. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know what life they had. Mm -hmm. But if we keep putting it under the rug and we don't open it up, you don't, you don't know how, you know, you can still start hating this person, hating that person. Mm -hmm. You don't know the person as a human being. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time I went to work and I was on this job and there was only one other black person that was on the job. And then I came in, it was two of us. So when I came in, the black person wasn't supposed to befriend me because that means uh, we were black over here. <laughs> so she didn't befriend me, but the, this white young lady befriended me. And we opened up a whole new, she was thinking that we're from Dayton, Ohio. She was thinking that Dayton, Ohio was a place where it's just black people killing each other and this and that. And she was afraid to come to Dayton. And I looked at oh, Franklin. 15 miles away. <laughs> I looked at Franklin like blacks not supposed to go there. But she and I formed a friendship that opened up a whole new world for her and a whole new world for me. I would go to Franklin and meet her family. She would come to Dayton and meet my family. And she realized we weren't so, it wasn't so bad. <laughs> and she started doing a job and she would come to Dayton and go into houses that she would never have gone in before she, we met. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking at this time in life, things that we're going through now, mm -hmm. we need to open up and know where we all are coming from we can maybe understand why this person is feeling this way, mm -hmm. why you're feeling that way, because you never have come together mm -hmm. before. So I, I thank you. I'll give you a applause. This conversation is very important. And yes, uh, it is important for the descendants of slave owners to paint and pull out those inner emotions, because um, as a 36-year-old black man, I don't know what y'all think. I mean, because sometimes a lot of what's happening in America is things are so masked, as we were talking about before, but yet the wealth still stays on one side. <laughs> so it's just like, so sometimes it's very confusing for black people. And growing up in the 80s and 90s, I always ask my parents, like, why are black people in this situation? But I could never get any answers. But like as I go, I used to travel further into the South every summer and go to Florida and you would hear your uncles and you hear your aunts and you hear your grandparents have these stories. Mm -hmm. And then like we were saying before at the gallery, the, the, the language, you would hear the language from very harsh to very diluted now. So like it would be like the, the, the language from your grandparents would be, you better watch them crackers because they gonna be like this. Then you hear your dad's generation, and then he'd be like, them white folks over there gonna be like this. 
But then you come down to our generation, this be like, then I'm telling my sons, like, look, all people are not like this. You know what I'm but yet, yet, the wealth is still standing on one side. And 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 I think that's that's why it's important for these conversations to open up because me approaching 40 years old, I can look back on the 80s and 90s, and the civil rights era was very romanticized to us. And but yet it's a mounting frustration with me because I can look, look at the effects of all of it. I can look at Jefferson Street, I can look at North Nashville and be like, damn, this, this don't look good over here. You know what I'm saying? So it's very important for these conversations to happen because so much was swept under the rug from the previous generation. And it's almost like pulling teeth trying to get them to talk about. Yes. And I know it is. I know it's shame. I know it is. But it's just like now I'm grown mama. I'm grown dad. I'm grown, you know what I'm saying? So it's like now we can have these conversations and start opening up the shame and the guilt and all these things. And we can start talking about these things. And to see imagery like this, it's very important for me to see this stuff, type of stuff. Because I really don't know what's going on in white America's minds because they smile, they laugh, they joke, but yet you see wealth still stay on one side. And that's, and that's very unnerving, you know what I'm saying? And yet at the same time, the people who look like they're very, very befriending, they're usually the gentrifiers. So those are the liberals. So it's just like, that's very scary too. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like, what do you do with this information? You know what I'm saying? And it's almost kind of like you're just like a victim of America, but at the same time, you're trying to still do things to correct the problems. Right. Mm -hmm. So these, these conversations are very important. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to, if I could just jump in, I remember, uh, you know, really quickly, you know, we're talking about uh, painting and slavery and stuff like that, and it's really clear, like, okay, you're a black painter, I'm a white painter. <laughs> and then I painted like a big white guy's painting about slave stuff and you made a black guy painting slave stuff. But then we started doing all the works on paper, which was just like, let's just confuse the authorship completely. Nobody knows who did what. And you'll see what happens. And the idea that, you know, we we'd be talking about some of this stuff. And it's tricky already, but we're, you know, there's a certain level of distance with the historical stuff. And, uh, and it's really quick to go like, uh, next thing you know, we're talking about parenting and we're talking about painting. And we're just talking about stuff because we're also guys, we're also parents, we're also painters. But then it's really easy to be like, oh, none of that matters. Let's just talk about painting and parenting. But that's not that's not where to stop either because when we start talking about painting, you're talking about things that you're trying to tell your son about what it's like to be a black kid in America. And I don't know what that means, so I can't just say, well, we're both just parents because you're also having a different experience of what it's like to be a parent, and you have a different experience what it's like to be a painter. You can use imagery I can't. So it's like trying to find points of connection, but not just stopping there like, oh, everything is good. Because that's dangerous, because white people still clearly have power. And so if you go like, we're all good, that keeps the power dynamic fixed. And that's a dangerous kind of place to stop. And I think good-hearted white people stop there, you know. You can see it happen a lot. I, I, think, I think it's, uh, um, and, and this is the, the, the very underlining um, thing that I see, is a lot of the time the question, or these questions are not answered, or these conversations are not had, because then we're going to start getting into wealth redistribution. You're right. <laughs> and this is like, 
okay, it was a bunch of work did and nothing was paid, but yet the wealth seems to be on this side and these people are still in a bad situation. Right. So when this conversation starts to happen, it has to be a tipping of a scale. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the conversation is yet to be had. Mm -hmm. that, for me, as a, as a 36 year old black man, I, that's, that's the only thing I've come up with from reading all the history and all the conversations, but it, I would love to hear more. The wealth distribution is the kind of stopping point. Yes. Yeah. I, I even think that it is the, the idea of wealth not actually meaning just cash money. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the idea of power and that power distribution is changing in America and people of power, if I were in power, I wouldn't want my power taken away. I mean, it's just that, that plain and simple. So if I see uh, white America with that power, having this conversation now making me understand why somebody would want to keep that power. But it at least lets us know that we are at least coming to the table to say, all right, you know you have the power. We understand that we're if you have the power, then we're powerless. So what are we going to do? I mean, what are we, I mean, how do we go about, about fixing that idea? And I know some uh, in the white community are going to say, well, if we have that conversation, then that means that we're going to have to say that those people need power when they really don't want them to have that same, that same type of power that we have. But we as black people have to come to that conversation and be able to say to ourselves, what are we going to do with that power if we actually have it? Mm -hmm. And since we were never really taught how to understand to be in that situation, then sometimes we shoot our own selves in the foot by not telling ourselves that we're powerful as of right now to be able to come to the table and actually say that we need that, we need that same power. It's something that the country has said that we're supposed to have, so here's what we're going to do about it. We're going to ask for power. I mean, that, that, I mean, that, 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 I mean, in our community, I mean, for some reason that has never made sense to me, is how do you ask somebody for power? You're already coming at it powerless. Mm -hmm. I mean, so if you're asking for power and somebody's giving it to you, you still don't have power because they gave it to you. you mean? So, so those conversations, I believe, and I thank Julie again, those conversations if we can actually put it up on an image and just say, we're going to meet at this place and look at these images, and we're going to talk about how this is, we're able to kind of deflect it onto the, onto the paintings as opposed to looking across the aisle and saying, where does art and painting fit into this? Because, yeah. you know, we don't need to talk about paintings, you know, that, that, that is a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. But if you put a thing up and said, we're going to have a public discussion about slavery, and race relations <laughs> on, a, on a Thursday night. Who wants to come? <laughs> and so the role of the painter is, uh, as you know, as kind of this uh, hermetic figure that can be like, let's talk about painting, and then that extends its tendrils into all sorts of other stuff because it's no, it's no one particular thing. And so you know, in it, as far as it is, uh, species of interior design, somebody can go buy one of those paintings and put it on the wall of their living room and it can stop there or it can uh, lead people into a public dialogue about race which is you know a useful thing or a public dialogue about any other thing that happens to be 
but that's where I think art is kind of a really useful, um, it navigates people in that direction. And it's solid, it's, it's there. Yeah, and it's, and I think you have to deal with it. Yeah. To a certain degree, yeah. Any questions? Yeah. I kind of have one for uh, Julia. As a facilitator for things like this, um, as a gallery owner, um, what do you see like the responsibility for artists, or like you as an artist as well? That is the single greatest weight on me. And to be honest, since putting this show up, I've been in my own studio twice. I've been up for a week and a half, so don't shame me too, too. <laughs> but now I really, I really have been looking um, inward a lot and asking myself that exact question. Um, I'm known for painting. Really pretty, and now I'm awesome. real, real obviously uh, white ladies, you know, like, and not really, they're not, not really taking a lot of risks in the realm of framing any sort of narrative occasionally. I mean, I, that's not all I've done, and I'm proud of my body of work, but I really do feel accountable in a way that I never have as a painter. Um, but there's still a lot of soul searching between me and the answer to that question. Yeah. I didn't mean to put it so much like even just on race, because I mean there are a lot of issues. People can take and make their own issue if they want to yeah. kind of provoke thought around. But I was just wondering, you know, as far as this goes, because you facilitated this great conversation mm -hmm. about stuff that people don't talk about. So I was just curious. It's, cha it's changing my relationship to my work. It already has in a big way. I'm actually a little bit afraid of the trap of overthinking it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm kind of, I'm in that like gear grinding place right now. But I know it's gonna, it'll, it's gonna lock, but I ain't gonna give up. I mean, I would just say, uh, if there is any one responsibility for an artist, it's to follow your own curiosity. And you know, I don't think anybody should paint to serve anything in particular. I mean, you need poems about flowers and you need poems to topple governments. I mean, you need all that stuff. Well, and one nugget that you, and I forget who, who you were quoting, it was the, the statement about, um, you know, we all have the tendency to sort of adopt other people's sort of histories and narratives into our right. own. So much so that our own gets lost and to make sure that you Stay true to your kind of compass, yeah. your trajectory. And I feel like I should be doing this as an artist. You know, right. That's, Which is that's not good. Feudal, I know, but it's a, it's a constant battle I think, for all of us. You know. hey, uh, if I can uh, yeah, if I can uh, pick up on that, uh, and uh, yeah, as an artist and a facilitator, um, yes, yeah, individuals who make stuff, whether you're a painter, writer, uh, filmmaker, musician. Um, I also think it's going to be coming down to us as individuals finding platforms for our work. Yeah. You know, that there are only so many um, galleries, I and mean, this is a fantastic opportunity here in this space. Um, but I think in the coming years, and Nashville happens to be really good at this, and it's, it's got a great independent, creative community. Um, but we've got to start organizing and, uh, and kind of 
lot of conversation about it. Um, 
maybe a little bit more prickly, uh, then I would say that those are the times to kind of address it the best way that you can. But I mean, we all kind of know, like, no one's stated in this space. Um, even the prickly parts of your own feelings are still going to be kind of squashed down a little bit just by virtue of you don't want people to think of you a certain way. So there may be some things that I feel that I'm not going to say in this room, even though this room is open to it at this point in time. So it's just something that I might need to battle within myself of saying, why do I feel these certain ways? Let me deal with that. Uh, and we were talking about it at the gallery when I'm speaking to my, my son is 15 years old and he's uh, just about 6'1", he's like 250 some odd pounds. And so he's a big adult looking kid, he had full beard and all of that. So uh, when I know that he's going outside and I don't have this I mean, wall of protection around him and I know that a white person might see him as a threat in me, it's the father in me that wants to fight that idea already, but I'm thinking completely different than he's thinking at that point in time. He has white friends and he's going to a school where everything is kind of very socially open and so on and so forth. And I'm wanting to fight battles for him that aren't even happening yet. Mm -hmm. So that little prickly part of me that says, man, he's white folks, but I'm not doing anything with my son if he's in a car with somebody. If I put that on him, then I'm the one in the wrong at that point in time. You know, I'm, I'm literally projecting a, an anger uh, on him that he shouldn't have to live with. I mean, so, I mean, those are the things that I, I mean, that I kind of deal with, that I kind of put away in a nice little box uh, that I don't deal with in all of my works, uh, but I'm having to struggle with it. So maybe this is something where I need to actually deal with, why am I having those fears? Like, uh, you, you could check with your mother to verify it, but uh, I have actually worried about your son being assumed that he is this big, brutal, uh, angry white, angry black kid. And it, it shocked me to hear you come back out and say it here. And even because it, that stays on my mind, but he's a big kid. And there's no way a police officer who is somewhat afraid of, of, of a black kid this size is going to think, going to know that this kid is only 14 years old. Right. And, and as well as he has been taught, mm -hmm. I guess if I were in the policeman's uh, position, I may, I, have, I may have the same feeling. But uh, that that skip that's worried me. <laughs> it does worry me that, that uh, your son, my grandson, uh, does not look like the child that he really is. Mm -hmm. See what I mean? He just he looks like a big man. He just literally looks like a big man. And those fears are what uh, kind of hit me when he leaves the house. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I those uh, with my daughter as well. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. Listen to you and Thax and address that, and listening to Scott talk about it, just in having a teenage kid sending them out to the world. That 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 reality that a black parent. I mean, you're. I can't even imagine every time they leave the house, like you just said, that you have to have that conversation. 
it's so messed up to begin with. Um, I believe that it is, it should be drilled into white parents, Asian parents, Latina parents, to, you, we are all obligated to have that conversation with our children. Do you know what I mean? Like, not just, like, almost on behalf, particularly of black children. Do you know what I mean? Like, from this day forward, and like, like just everyone is so much more conscious, unfortunately, of that for terrible reasons now, but it's not, it shouldn't just be on the shoulders of black parents to have that conversation with their kid, to brace them. That's the responsibility of every parent. And that, to me, is a huge part of sort of greater consciousness, if that makes sense. Because I get this, this perception of the angry black artist. And, and I don't want my work being like ghettoized over here. And, but at the same time, I've tried to almost try to do a Henry Osawa Tanner. And let me just paint landscapes. <laughs> but even with even growing up in Tennessee, hearing the stories of my grandparents, hearing the stories of my uncles, hearing the stories of my aunts, I even look at trees differently. Because when I see when I see horizontal branches, I automatically assume, especially if it's an old tree and it's a horizontal branch on it, I automatically assume what happened on that tree. So it's just like <laughs> This stuff is in my head, even when I try to like just paint stuff and some nice stuff. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like, so what am I to do with these? You know what I'm saying? What? And then me trying to like edit that down so I don't seem angry to people. And it's just like, why do I even have to deal with that? You know what I'm saying? Because these are real emotions inside of me. Why do I have to mask what I'm feeling just to try to appease Exactly. And that's that's actually exactly what I was talking about earlier. That that idea. Of of masking my work. Sometimes even the, the work is not really a mask, it's the satire that I put into it that makes it approachable. I mean, I'm still telling the same story, still talking about my anger, but it might be, uh, well, okay, I'll, I'll make this a little, this color a little more intense and maybe more pinks and light blues are, are gonna be something that's acceptable, not really acceptable, but approachable. I've got a question then because you know you're a teacher and I don't know, you're, you're a teacher or you teach art or something like that. <laughs> so I, I'm really glad I get to ask this question. You know, I teach art history. Uh, you know, Belmont is actually they're getting more diverse. They're really doing a good job recruiting. Mm. You, know, you know, people from different backgrounds, uh, African American, uh, Asian, and so on. And you know, a lot of art. Is doesn't portray positive images of African Americans or other races, and so you know I, I think that sometimes I find myself struggling because I find you know I want people to be able to sort of make up their own mind about what are good and bad images, you know, and I don't want to be always the one that is telling them that this is a stereotype, this is bad, <laughs> you know. And what's the kind of the balance there? I mean, kind of allowing people to kind of to see on their own without their teacher always telling them, you know, what this is kind of, you know, this it's stereotypical and it's it's, neg it's a negative image. Do you see what, do you see where I'm where I'm coming from? Yeah, yeah I mean that's and that's 
Unfortunately, that seems like one of the dualities and, and that, that black artists have to kind of play on because our community wants to see romanticized ideas of themselves. So I was talking, I can't remember who I was talking to uh, at the show. I was asking if I had ever done a work that, I think it might have been Paul. Uh, I was asking, if, maybe not, I'm sorry. <laughs> that uh, was talking about how they ever dealt with um, slavery reform work. Not when Paul was actually Jerry Waters. And I said, yes, I had done, I mean, sort of work with images that dealt with slavery before, but it was romanticized. Slave in the field. Mm -hmm. I mean, beautiful. I mean, we, our community has a tendency to grab hold to those images. And those things that seem like they would be stereotypical are things that young black artists will create quite a bit because we want to kind of hold that romantic idea. So when I paint something like this about slavery, and I, I mean, I've been afraid to even put it up online because I'm thinking that people of my own community would not be ready to see this image and would think poorly on me about letting folks see that image. I mean, so it's, it's that idea of what a stereotype is is just so strange in our community that if I'm dealing with something like this, I'm, that's not black art. I mean, black art is about the idea of, of the slave fields and I mean, historical figures and black love and jazz and so many other things that are kind of romanticized. Um, I mean, it gets, say, I'm sorry. Empowerment stuff. Yeah, yeah, the things that, that uh, we, we all kind of hold as ours that gives us a little bit of power. But when I'm sort of creating a work that is literally just about how I'm feeling about something right now, it seems too strange, I guess. I mean, I, and, and it's, there's, no answer, there's no correct answer to it at all. It's just a, a duality that I have to play with and struggle with on saying that, no, I'm not a, I'm not a black artist. I mean, I don't create black art. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an artist that's trying to tell my story. It just so happens that it has some black people in it. The other part of it is that the people that see it are going to automatically put it into a category, right. even if I'm not attempting to. Right. So it's, there's no real right answer. I just said all that to say there's no answer to it at all. I mean, it's just something that I have to battle with every time I step into the studio and think about putting some image on there that looks a little bit darker than something that people aren't used to seeing. Can I, well, can I, just before, you have your hand up like eight times. Uh, everyone's been kind of speaking to what I was wanting to get at anyways, but uh, I was just wanting to kind of ask as a fellow artist, and you know, it's funny that your piece is called In Times of War because I feel like we're about to enter that in a different way, like a modern way that's different than before, but everything keeps replaying itself anyways. But I wonder how, like when you were talking about using absurdity, to get your point across and like talking about how you have a son you have to worry about and maybe if you have a son the same age you don't have those worries and when I look at the pieces side by side I see the different life experiences and I wonder as just people who care how is it incumbent upon us to um, be more direct with what we're trying to say and instead of using art as like a you know, I want people to interpret this in however way they see, but like, do we need to do that right now? Do we need to be more direct and have these images in people's faces? Because as artists, we want to 
I don't know, we all have different agendas, and you were talking about that earlier. We've spoken to that in little bits and pieces all night, but I guess just thinking about moving forward, making art happen. Are there times when we should, it's like, as a citizen, like even as Obama was saying, like, that's our most important job right now is to be a citizen. And as an artist citizen, what does that mean to me? And that's what you guys are making me think about. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I can think of there, you know, I, I wouldn't set out, I didn't set out, I wouldn't set out to like make art about the social statement. Right. I would, you know, that feels, it doesn't feel good to me. It feels like a lot of work. It feels like a real pain in the ass. And then other people have to read it a certain way or you've missed the mark. And that feels like propaganda. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you are, uh, but if you're using your art, if you feel inclined to use your art, um, in, uh, I feel like it's better as a question generator than it is a declaration maker. Right. I feel like words are great, <laughs> words are great, actions are great for making declarations. Mm -hmm. um, paintings are not great at making declarations. They just go up on a wall. And uh, you can look at them, you can very easily choose not to look at them. If you want to make a declaration, you should do it on the street. Well, what do you think about a painting that says antebellum on it? That's a word. Absolutely, and it's a big even just putting titles next to it, mm -hmm. and it's really been really important that I that I know that people know the story behind my piece because it humanizes slaves and it humanizes slave owners in a complicated way. So there's a certain declaration to it, uh, but the idea that uh, that you're really you're really just trying to generate uh, questions in a fairly precise way with painting feels uh, as productively active politically as I feel like, at least in my experience, painting can get precisely uh, directed in question making mm -hmm. and leaving declarations to, you know, the signs that we're going to be holding on Saturday, you know, those sorts of things. Action and speeches and stuff like that, community-based organization, mm -hmm. way better. Painting, you know, not so great at making declarations, but it's really good at generating questions. And I, I don't think that this is making a de declaration so much, just because of the word at develop. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and just cop to my ignorance. <laughs> but I, my understanding of the term at develop, and I think that's a really good element, a really important element of this piece, I think when most Southerners hear at develop, their brain just goes to an aesthetic. You know, a, a Southern period aesthetic. I did not know that antebellum specifically means, and it has no technical relationship to civil war. It just means before a war. And that it's just used so commonly in reference to the civil war. And it's war used in a beautiful, eloquent kind of. Such a demarcation. You know. demarcation. Yeah, and, it's, and I don't understand how it's the name. It's it's made to give you a good feeling. Yeah. I just I can't even. <laughs> yeah. I, it is it is a, it is posing a very huge question. You placing this work because it, it it has it's like go home and or at least without your phone and Google that. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't what you think it means. That was the reason why I wanted the title. Now it's like yeah, the actual title. Uh, to just be the definition of, of antebellum, and like literally straight from what would look like a dictionary title, 
just to say, okay, here's exactly what this word is. And I mean, how do you make something, I mean, there's a reason why people feel like there's a romantic side to antebellum was before, before the war. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it is just that point blank. I mean, this, there were enslaved people and there were, there were powerful people. And I mean, like you were saying earlier, I mean, that's, that's kind of still going on right now. So I mean, it was this idea of uh, when, uh, when I heard Noah's title in time of war, that kind of made me wonder what antebellum was. And I had always heard the romantic, sort of beautiful side of it. Uh, so I just looked it up and I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. And, it, and it hit me like a brick. So I was it's like, sort of hey. case in point for the whole discussion of race. <laughs> I mean, and but that's what happens when you don't look at history, when we don't talk about history, it gets packaged and slurred. Mm. You know, it gets twisted and mangled and diluted and t just wrong. But also say uh, just briefly in response to Luca's question about uh, you know with times of war and how do you work in times of war, uh, a friend of mine, Shelton Wallsmith, painter in, in uh, New York, brought up to me that you know you look at Matisse's paintings during World War II and there are these beautiful, mm -hmm. you know, peaceful, you know, he's doing, and a lot of the uh, artists that were fleeing atrocities during World War II are not making work about that. Some of them are, some of them aren't for very specific reasons. And all of that is a legitimate response. You don't have to make work that's about atrocity while atrocity is going on to be only a legitimate yeah. form. Sometimes you're too close to it to even understand. Right, you can understand it. Montreal's yeah. grids and stuff, or you know, we're talking, you know, war era stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is, these are not people that are escaping war, escaping themselves from it. They're dealing with it directly. That's just what it looks like for them, which I think is beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think? I'd be curious to hear your. And I mean, this is not, I mean, it's not just an issue in, in the South or in, in the United, I mean, there's many different countries that are, you know, that have, that they're dealing with these issues, you know, of, of you know, the past and denying the past and, or not wanting to see the truth in the past and, and, um, you know, um, in, 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 you know, in some countries it's, it's, it's much more, it's even much more dangerous to, as an artist to address that you know, address the past in a, in a kind of truthful, honest, searching way. And so, um, you know, at the same time, um, I, I, I also, I feel like uh, the, um, the, there should be, we should, we should let artists find their, um, their themes and their, and their concerns without having to sort of judge them by how, how sort of how does it fit into like the current the current mm -hmm. state of affairs and you know um, and um, I um, um, so I I I, 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 I guess I'm, I'm with with you Noah that um, uh, the um, uh, the sort of the, the, the sort of pressure on artists to um, to be always kind of speaking to whatever is the immediate sort of political you know situation is it's, it's um, I find it sort of I find it I, I, you know um, I don't find it very productive and very um, 
very stimulating. I feel like vapid and reactionary. You know, um, yeah. Um, I was thinking back, you know, and I was thinking about so who are some of the white artists that I know of that kind of have have maybe probed the history of the South in the way you know Noah is doing it. And there's actually not not too many people that come that come to mind, but um, I don't know if anybody knows the artist William Christenberry. He died just very recently. He was a photographer. Mm -hmm. And he did a series of photographs related, related to the KKK. He also did an entire installation that dealt with the KKK. And it was this kind of kind of documentary in his approach, you know, and, and I met him, uh, he, he did a show at Cheekwood and so I, so, so I was trying to really kind of, like, yeah, I had this opportunity to kind of ask this man about this body of work and he was just always saying, you know, he just felt compelled to, to do it and he, um, he, he certainly, you know, he, he was addressing this topic because he felt like it was something that was maybe kind of the, there was uh, too much of a, of a lid put on it uh, in this, in the, in the, in the, in, the, in, uh, in, in, in sort of, again, kind of going back to, nobody really wants to deal with the sort of ugly, the ugly truth of, you know, slavery, but also a follow up to slavery, KKK, lynchings, and, and so on and so on, right? And so, for this, you know, I felt like for him it was a kind of almost like an act of kind of like trying to not avoid this ugly side of the South. And I never, never found out whether any of his relatives were, you know, KKK members or what any personal connections he had. But he always explained it to me like it's something I felt compelled to do, and kind of almost like bring the ghosts out of the, you bring it out of the closet, you know. Look it up. I mean, look it up online. I'm sure you can find find the, the, the material. Yeah, Jessica, my sister was talking to me about an uh, interview that she heard uh, William Christenberry, and it, it had the sense like this is just what I grew up with. You know, this is the backdrop to my life. It's not like you went out looking for a cause to work. He's from Alabama. It's just what he is where he's from. That was what he knew, and so mm -hmm. that he felt compelled to work with it. And I think there's a certain like whatever you come to naturally is what you need to make work about and not like seeking out something to do like good in society because art is not great at that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you if it comes to you naturally and then you're, it stews inside and there you go, you make it work. That, that sort of brings to mind some thoughts about when, to me, we've talked so often about which creative work of art and then you walk away, it's got a life of its own. And as you said, it, it, it's not as good at making decorations as it does at asking questions, but who is it asking questions of? And it uh, makes me think about the works of Daumier or, or, or Picasso, Guernica. Once they left, then are you still going to have an interaction with that painting and is it specific to his experience and is it specific to his war or is it specific to the violence that he saw? or does it speak to you directly? And uh, <coughs> the value of this art is whether or not it provokes questions and conversations with people who have no idea who know it's that mark. And uh, whether or not that has a value of its own. Mm -hmm. and, uh, documentary. As, 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 as an art historian, <coughs> uh, I'd like to know your perspective on that. Um, once the conversation's over here, the painting goes somewhere mm -hmm. else, and you know it shows up at a show in San Francisco, and yeah. um, 
somebody stands in front of it and has a different aesthetic experience. Well, but yeah, that's true. I, but you know, I think my you know, as a job of an art historian should be to um, to really give uh, people as 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 as, as good of a, of a of an understanding of of how this work was was made and, and why it was made and. So um, you know, for you know, we talked about the curator also, and kind of this idea of you know, sort of kind of this idea of the role of the sort of being a mediator, right, between the work and the public and the audience, and whether it's academic or it's you know, museums or or, or what it is. So and um, um, and it also means that you're not necessarily always the judge, you know, right? As an as an art historian, you're not necessarily the judge. You. But what you want to do is you want to give us as, as much information about how this work was was created and how it was maybe at the time perceived and how it has changed, how the perception perception has changed. But um, but uh, you know I, I don't see it I don't see it as being uh, you know as my role as being like the sort of the judge right and um, uh, but to give people the tools to see and to to understand and to find out you know kind of. Um, uh, what, um, how to, how to read these images? How to, how to, how to, um, you know, evaluate images? So, um, um, uh, and, and again, for me today to be here today and and kind of actually really have this conversation is very meaningful because you know, as an artist, oftentimes you sort of you sort of you tend to um, maybe uh, just kind of historicize things too much. And not live too much sort of in the present, and, to, and have that sort of the conversation with what's going on in the present. And so um, and that's kind of why I'm here. Mm -hmm. well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, um, so mm -hmm.